1: At the Cambridge Science Centre, where we're recording this programme with this wonderful audience. Yay! In the next hour, we're going to hear about some incredible animals and even meet a few of them. Ultimately, we'll decide which amazing animal is the best in our lineup.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. <laughs>
1: are nervously waiting to take to the stage and fight it out for your votes and also to impress our panel of judges on the panel we have naked scientist georgia mills we also have max gray who is a phd student at the department of zoology and this year won the cambridge round of fame lab which is a science communication competition we also have george who's representing our studio audience hi george hello how old are you Eleven. What's your favourite animal? Moles. (laughs) Moles! Fantastic! (laughs) That was a good answer for one of our participants tonight. (laughs) So what's going to happen tonight is each of our participants is going to have a few minutes to try and convince you that their animal is the best. And then our judges are going to give them a mark out of ten. Those marks are going to be added up, and at the end of the night, the three participants with the top marks are going to go over to your vote, and you are going to choose from those three who you think the winner is going to be. Does that sound good, everyone? Yeah. Fantastic. So I think it's about time we get our first participant up. So kicking off the competition is Yola Yolas, who's a PhD student at the Department of Zoology at Cambridge University. Hi, Yola. Hello. So what animal are you going to be talking about today?
3: I will be talking about the three-spined stickleback, which is a small little fish that can be found throughout the UK and the Northern Hemisphere.
1: And you've actually brought some sticklebacks with you today, is that right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Let me show you.
1: So you've got here a um, see-through plastic box, and in it are two tiny little fish. They're only about an inch, maybe an inch and a half long, and they're a sort of goldy colour. They've got big eyes, and I can see their little fishy mouths going blub, blub, blub. They look like nice enough fish, but they don't look hugely amazing to me at the moment. Are you going to try and convince me differently?
3: Yes, definitely. What is quite cool about these fish is they have these really elaborate breeding displays. So the male, they make this nest in the river, tries to uh, get the female and becomes really red during the breeding season to impress a female. And what they then do, they have this really cool zigzag dance, uh, after which the female, hopefully for the male, delivers the eggs. What is really cool as well is that these male sticklebacks are really good fathers. They not only defend the nest from predators and other sticklebacks, but they actually carry the young in their mouth when they go too far from the nest. What is also really cool is they these fish actually have personalities. And think, like, how can animals have personalities? Well, they have uh, really consistent behaviors. So you can imagine, like, some People take a lot of risks and others are really shy. Some are really social and some other fish might be, you know, quite uh, solitary. Well, this is exactly what we find in the fish as well. But what I would like to show you today is some really cool uh, aspect of these fish. Namely, although they look very ordinary, they can change colour. And not only that, they can change colour in this next hour. And what I have behind me here is a couple of buckets, different environments that the fish might see in the world.
1: What can you see there? In the white bucket, I can
4: see little white pebbles. Mm -hmm. And in the black bucket, I don't really see anything except plain water. So in the bottom
1: of the black bucket, it's quite hard to see, but there's actually some black sand in there, is that right?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, When they're in the wild, they can sometimes live in these light streams where there's not a lot of cold and there's white sand. But other uh, fish populations might live in these really dark streams. And sometimes fish might actually encounter both. So it might be helpful for them to actually be able to change colour.
1: So I guess these are quite small fish. I can imagine they're prey for quite a lot of different things.
3: Yeah, actually 50 different predators have been described. Think about birds uh, and fish. But actually, did you know insects can actually predate on these small sticklebacks? So there's many species that adapt to their environment and they look like their environment. So this is, you know, something you can find throughout the animal kingdom. But there's actually not that many species that are able to adapt very quickly and that change colour. And this is what I'd like to show you tonight.
1: So we're going to actually see some sticklebacks change colour?
3: Hopefully, yes. In an hour you will see which fish will be in the white bucket and which fish would have been in the black bucket.
1: Should we get it set up then?
3: Definitely, yes. Let's go. So what we have here is three buckets. There's a nice big bucket with um, greyish gravel and a nice plant for them for cover. And there's ten fish in there. And what I will do, I will put five fish in the black bucket... And five fish in the wide buckets.
1: OK, so we've got ten of these fish that are all the same colour. They're this sort of light, brownish, greyish, goldish colour. I think it's probably the best way of describing it. And we're going to quake them out with a, a little um, net and put them in the different buckets. They are quite hard to see. They're this is the very problem. well camouflaged against that sort of greyish-brown gravel you've got in the bottom of that bucket.
3: Exactly. They have been in this bucket with brownish gravel for an hour now, and it's hard for me to even find them. So hopefully now in an hour we'll see that they actually change colour.
1: So how do they actually change colour? What is it that's going on inside the fish?
3: Well, so for this very rapid colour change, what happens in the cells of the fish if they have this pigment uh, in these cells called chromatophores, and the pigment can be either dilated or uh, contracted. And if the pigment all comes together, they might look much darker than uh, when it's dilated. But when you put fish in different environments for a longer period of time, actually these cells in the pigment starts to really go away. So it's a totally different process that happens on the short time scale versus the long time scale.
1: So is it similar pigment that gives us, say, brown hair versus blonde hair, the same sort of idea?
3: Yeah, it's very similar indeed, yeah.
1: But they can actually control that. So that would be like me being able to say, I quite fancy being blonde this evening.
3: Um, well, it's not really like that. So yeah. it's...
1: How disappointing
3: it? yeah it would be great wouldn't it <laughs> um the way it works actually is that it's based on the vision of the fish then sends a signal to the to the small brain of the fish and then autonomously uh the 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 cells start to change um the pigments
1: so it's an automatic reaction based on what's around them that makes them blend in
3: exactly yes
1: And do all fish change as quickly as each other, or does it differ between different
3: fish? This comes back to these personalities I talked uh, about before, namely these polar fish that take a lot more risk. They're not as responsive to their environment, and it takes them much longer to change colour to blend into their environment. Amazing, isn't it?
1: It really is. I'd never heard of fish that could change colour before. It's fascinating. Thank you so much. (laughs) Now, we'll be coming back to Yola later to see how his
0: fish have got on. But first of all, let's go over to the judges. What did you think of that, Georgia? Thank you, Yola. Well, when you brought those fish out, I thought, oh, they look so boring. Like, maybe I'd eat one. But (laughs) after your talk, I think I'd actually quite like to be one. They have personality, they make good fathers, and I think I really like the idea of a man turning red to impress me. So I might need to revise my score later if I see you running around with paint later. But for now, I'm very impressed.
5: I think you explained it quite well, but I was wondering about... You said they try to impress uh, mates. Do they end up having to fight over mates?
3: Yes, they do. When the breeding season starts, the temperature of the water rises, the light increases, and this elicits this red coloration in the males... And it acts like a sign stimulus. So whenever other males see this red collar, they immediately become aggressive. So all these males try to get their own territories, and they fight with one another to defend their nest and hopefully get the best female that is around.
1: Okay, so now our judges have their scores. Over to you guys. Seven.
6: Six point five.
7: Eight. <laughs>
1: Ooh, <laughs> a strong score to start with, and as I say, judges will have a chance to revise their scores later, depending on how well the fish change colour. No pressure, Yola. <laughs> Let's have a huge round of applause for Yola Yolas from Cambridge University.
8: Naked Scientist
5: Greer here. Look, I'm going to come straight out with it. I need to ask you a favour. We want to make the Naked Scientist even better, but we just don't quite know how. And that's where you come in. We're asking all our listeners to fill out a survey. It will take less than five minutes, and guess what? You'll even be in with a chance of winning some Amazon vouchers. Head to NakedScientist.com slash survey that's nakedscientist.com slash survey and get clicking to be in with a chance
1: you're listening to the naked scientists with me jenny smith and this week our scientists are fighting it out to convince you that their chosen animal is the best next up we've got nick crumpton who now works at the natural history museum but before that he did his phd here in cambridge working on moles Moles are very cute and can be a bit annoying if they dig up your garden, but I'm guessing that's not why you've chosen them. What's so amazing about moles?
2: For starters, how about their strength? Now, these animals are pretty incredible. They are super strong. If you have a look at their arms, you open up their arms and have a look at how big the muscles are, they're absolutely ginormous. Now, their humerus bone, which is the top of your arm, that's actually as wide as it is long. And that's all for muscle attachment. So these guys are really, really strong indeed. Now, we know that some species of moles can exert a force that's 24 times their body weight. Now, that's like a 12... stone person that's that's a little bit more than me like moving a 1.8 tonne block Now, in addition to that think about where they live these guys live under the ground they live in tunnels so that not only means that you have to move all that soil out the way that also means that you've got to make a living where you can't see but also where breathing is actually really really difficult we know that the concentration of carbon dioxide in tunnels is 10 times greater than it is at the surface. We also know that the amount of oxygen found down there is less than half what we're used to breathing. Now, to deal with that, that means that moles actually have twice as much hemoglobin in their blood. So hemoglobin is the stuff that makes your blood red, and it's the stuff that actually soaks up oxygen into your body.
1: Moles are well known for being blind. Being blind doesn't sound that amazing to me. What's so good about them?
2: Oh, Ginny, that's because you've got such amazing eyes you know you are using them all the time there are lots of other ways that you can find your way around without using their eyes there are an awful lot of of blind animals but moles use their tactile sense
1: how good is the sense of touch compared to say yours or mine
2: the front of their face is more sensitive than our fingertips
1: so we've got a little demo to do to show you just how sensitive your fingers are and what it might be like to be a mole what's your name Gavin. And how old are you? Nine.
2: So I've got some stuff in this sack right here. We've got some objects, and you're not allowed to look at them, all right? So I want you to maybe, I don't know, look at the audience. They look like a a friendly audience. That's good.
1: Um, Close your eyes as well, just to be sure.
2: OK, I want Gavin to use his sense of touch and try and work out what this object might be. Now, first of all, we're going to use a part of your body that maybe you don't use an awful lot of touch, and that's going to be your elbow. Gavin, show me your elbow. Yes. <laughs> and then after that, we're going to see how good you are at working out what this object might be using your fingertip. <laughs> now, I'm going to push this against your elbow and see if you can tell me what this might be.
1: Gavin, if you want to move your elbow around, you can do that, sort of try and feel what it might be. What can you feel?
5: Um, I feel smooth. It's very tiny. Um, some spikes.
1: Some spikes, okay. Any ideas what kind of shape it might be?
5: Um, it might be
1: like a circular comb shape. Circular comb shape. Okay, it's not doing too badly. Now, shall we see how well you do with your hand?
2: So don't open your eyes, and I'm going to put this in your hand. So here you go, sir.
1: Okay, now see how quickly you can tell me what that is feeling with your hands.
7: Um,
5: it's like a type of car toy.
1: It's a car toy. Round of applause.
8: <laughs>
5: So once you were feeling
1: with your fingertips, was that fairly easy? Yeah.
5: Yes. And do you think you ever would have got it with your elbow? No, because my elbow's quite bigger than my hand. No matter
1: how many times you'd put that on his elbow, I don't think he ever would have got it. And yet our fingertips work really, really well. Mm. So why is that?
2: Well, that's because of the amount of touch-sensitive receptors we have on our fingertips. Now, in terms of moles, they have very, very sensitive faces on the front of their face they have some really really special touch sensitive organs which are called imers organs now no other creature has imers organs and we know that there's lots and lots of them if you use a really really high power microscope and you look at the skin on the front of the nose you'll see them and they're little bumps they're little mounds and we know that every single one of them is super super sensitive and can tell the brain what's going on in that area now in fact we know that the brain maps that whole front of the nose area so a tiny little shape, even if it's just Just brushing across the front of the face, they know what kind of shape it is, they know if it's edible. Now this is taken to an extreme in an amazing kind of mole called the star-nosed mole. It has 22 fleshy appendages coming off either side of its nostril.
1: Fantastic. Well, I have certainly learned an awful lot about moles. What about you guys?
0: over to our judges now thank you nick um i have a question i'm i completely agree with you moles are fantastic but if they had to develop all these traits to deal with underground the low oxygen having to dig why go in the first place
2: well, probably because it's really safe. Because if you go into the ground, then not very many predators, big predators, are going to follow you down there. And also, there's loads of food! And if you go down before anybody else, then you're going to have access to all those worms and all those beetles and all those other things that are down there. So it's a pretty smart move, evolutionarily.
1: Let's get our scores from the judges now. Eight. Eight? Ten. No. Oh! <laughs> Early Ten. I think it's about time we saw how the leaderboard is shaping up. So, Heather, how's our leaderboard looking? Well, the sticklebacks were doing
7: swimmingly with an amazing 21 and a half, but the moles have really dug in with (laughs) an impressive 26. Fantastic. Thanks,
1: Heather. Next up, we have Hannah Rowland, who investigates how predators and prey animals evolve to try to outsmart each other. And today, she's going to talk to us about caterpillars.
4: Welcome, Hannah. Why did you choose to talk about caterpillars today? I chose to talk about caterpillars because I think everybody here will have heard the story of the very hungry caterpillar. So I'm here to tell you that not only do caterpillars turn into beautiful butterflies, but they can eat more than Homer Simpson... They're stronger than the Incredible Hulk, and they're stronger than Nick's moles. Yeah. They've got vision better than Superman, and they've got self-defences that Captain America would be really jealous of. So first of all, supervision, like Superman. So we all know Superman can see through walls. Well, caterpillars have got 12 eyes, And they can see in a whole other dimension to us. They can see in the ultraviolet. And this helps them find plants and helps them find the seeds that they start to eat. Then there are caterpillars that hide from their predators. They pretend to be something they're not. And the black swallowtail caterpillar resembles bird poo. Now, if I was a bird, I don't think I'd want to eat my own bird poo. So this is a really good defence that I think any superhero would be really, really proud of. Now, caterpillars eat, can you believe this, more than Homer Simpson. They eat 27,000 times their own body weight in leaves in the four weeks that they're caterpillars. Now, that's the same as Nick eating 68 cows (laughs) a day... Now the strength. Caterpillars have more muscles than the incredible hulk. We've got 600 muscles in our bodies and caterpillars have got 4,000. They can keep hold of branches and when little birds find them on trees, they cling on really tight so that the birds can't predate them. And the peppered moth caterpillar looks like an oak branch or a birch branch that they rest on. And so when little birds are hopping around the trees like they are at the moment, they just don't see them. They just think, well, that's a branch, I'm not going to bother eating that. And the caterpillars survive by these wonderful visual defences. Now, some of them have more than one defence and the puss moth caterpillar has quite an arsenal of defences. When it gets disturbed and it thinks it's really in danger, it puffs up its head and it reveals this bright red face with black uh, fake eye spots. And if that wasn't enough, it has this tail on its end that it whips at the predator right over its head. And on the top of this tail, they have little red barbs that when they whip them at the predators, they really, really are very smelly. And if that wasn't enough, then they squirt acid at them. Now, some caterpillars have evolved conspicuous and bright colour patterns. And this is because they're very, very poisonous. Some caterpillars are hairy, It looks like somebody's shaved their moustache off. And I don't think anybody would want to eat something that's hairy. I think it'd be quite tickly in your throat. Now, the snake mimic caterpillar, I think, is the best of all. So when it thinks there's danger, it puffs up its head into this diamond shape. And on the underside, it has fake eyes like a snake. And when you get really, really close to it, it even waggles its body to make you think that it's going to pounce and give you a venomous bite so caterpillars are strong they eat absolutely loads they have really cool vision they can see in a whole other dimension to us and they also are the masters of disguise they can pretend to be things that they are absolutely not
1: there's another way of doing it isn't there where you can pretend to be really poisonous rather than actually being poisonous because of course creating the poison costs something whereas if you can just look a bit like something poisonous then you can get away with it the same way that we might stay away from a hoverfly that we see rather than swatting at it because we think it's a wasp. So, are there caterpillars that do that?
4: There are lots of caterpillars that really play
1: a game of bluff. Now, you've brought along a demo tonight to actually show a little bit about how this can work.
4: I'd like more than one volunteer, I'd like people who think they'd be really good little birds. What's your name? Peo. And your name? Adam. I want you to be like a little bird. And these are your caterpillars, okay? So these are chocolate revels. And we all know that there's some nice ones in here, and there are some pretty grotty ones. Okay, so revels are a type of chocolate
1: where they're all sort of similar sizes. some of them look a bit more round than others. Some are a bit more elongated and this. Some of them are a bit bigger, some of them are a bit smaller. When you dig in there, you might get a Malteser. You might get a chocolate-covered raisin. You might get chocolate-covered orange ball. Or you might get chocolate-covered coffee ball. Which one of those do you think sounds good? And The Malteser one. And which one sounds bad? I would say probably the coffee one. Okay, so we want Maltesers, we don't want coffee. But you don't know which is which, so you're just going to have to guess. Take
4: a couple of them. What was that one? Mm, I think it's coffee. Oh,
1: Oh, no.
4: The poisonous poisonous caterpillar. No.
1: Orange. Orange. Quite nice, actually. Okay, so orange is a good tasting caterpillar. So what you might want to do is start paying attention to what they look like. Because then when you go back for more, you'll be able to get one that you like. What else have you had? I also had the raisin and the orange, and the raisin one is now the best. So I can see that you are going repeatedly for the small sort of knobbly ones, which we know are raisins, and actually look very different from the others. So because you like those, you're going for those again. What exactly does that tell us about caterpillars?
4: Well, it tells us that if you are a caterpillar who's faking it and doesn't have any chemical defences or toxins that it actually pays to look very different to something that is very palatable or it pays you to actually start to look like something that's really, really disgusting. It would be really, really good if our predators decided that a particular shape or a particular colour really wasn't ever worth attacking.
1: So if you'd had some white chocolate ones in there and no one liked white chocolate, they'd be very easy to spot. So if you wanted to pretend to be white chocolate, that would work really well.
4: Yep, and that's exactly what we see in nature. It's called mimicry.
1: Thank you so much, Hannah Rowland. (laughs) Judges, what did you think about that?
6: I was just going to say it's pretty impressive that you managed to talk for all that time about caterpillars without ever mentioning butterflies. (laughs) It's very well done.
0: And I'm looking forward to the new Marvel film Captain Caterpillar. (laughs) (laughs) Our judges
1: are ready with their scores, so over to you guys. Seven and a half. I'm going to give him a nine.
6: I'm also going to go nine.
1: Strong, strong stuff there. Round of applause for Hannah Rowland.
6: Are you ready to
2: begin? Yes, I'm all set here. The Space boffins are joined by astronomer, Guardian writer and guitarist Stuart Clark for a Rosetta mission special. Six months after making history by landing on a comet. Pick up your backstage pass for behind-the-scenes interviews with some of the key players, Matt Taylor, Fred Jansen, Andrea Accomazzo and Kuhn Gertz from the German Space Agency's Philae Lander team, all on the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ginny Smith, and this week we're looking at some of the most amazing members of the animal kingdom. On the way, a 10-foot-long Burmese python, but before we meet him... Karina Logan from the Department of Zoology at Cambridge University works on intelligence in birds, particularly the grackle. Before we talk about those birds, I believe you want to test the intelligence of one of our audience. Is that
8: right? Yes, I do. Wow. A lot of volunteers already. What's your name? I'm Will. So I am going to ask you, Will, if you're going to be able to help me solve this puzzle Okay, so you're just removing a drape that's been
1: covering up rather a strange collection of objects you've got here on the table. So we've got in the middle a tall glass tube, which is maybe eight centimetres in diameter, and it's about half full with water. It's about 25 centimetres tall and floating on the top of the water is a little red ball. And then around it, we've got a selection of objects. What kind of objects can you see?
7: Uh, There's some foam, stones, uh, corks, sticks and leaves.
8: All sorts of weird things. So what have we got to do here? If you can get the ball out of the tube, then I will give you a chocolate bar or a piece of fruit leather. But you can't tip over the tube. So all you can
1: use is those two fingers, your front finger and your thumb and a little sort of pincer action. And you have to see if you can get that ball out. What are you going to do?
7: I think I'm going to put stones in the bottom so the water
1: rises up. Do you want to see if it works? Every time you're putting a stone in there, it's displacing some water and the water level's rising. So what are you aiming for? Oh, uh, that the water level rises enough so you can uh, take the ball out. Well yes. done. You yes. managed it. Round of applause. How do you actually go about doing this with a bird? I mean, you can't tell it to get a ball and swap it for chocolate, can you?
8: No, exactly. So I actually have to train the birds to drop the stones down the tubes. And I do this on a different apparatus, so there isn't water involved. It's just a a tube that's on top of a platform. So you drop the stone down the tube, and it collapses the platform. And the food was sitting on top of the platform, so then it falls out when the stone goes through the apparatus. So how long does it take them to learn it? Um, It depends. New Caledonian crows can learn it pretty quickly in in maybe around 100 trials. Great-tailed grackles, which is the species I'm promoting today, the fastest one was 165 trials, and the slowest was like 392 trials. It took her a while. So that's a little bit
1: longer than it took our volunteer here who just took one look at it and did the right thing.
8: Yeah, so with humans, you can just say, you know, get the reward and they don't need training and how to drop things down tubes because we have a lot of these kinds of experiences that the birds don't.
1: Why are you doing this with birds? I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, but I'm guessing there's a scientific reason.
8: Why I'm doing this, particularly with the great-tailed grackle, and for those who don't know, because they're not a bird that lives over on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, they're a bird, and they're about the size of a jackdaw, but they have a really long tail, kind of like a magpie. And with this particular bird, they have actually an average-sized brain for their body size, while the crows and the parrots have these really big brains. And so one of the ideas about brain size is that if you have a larger brain, you should be smarter, but these grackles, I first found them in Costa Rica. I was studying other animals there, and I saw these grackles, and they come right up to me, and they look me in the eye. And I think they wanted my food, but I also thought, gosh, they look really smart. And what I'm finding, which is pretty amazing, is that even though their brain is it weighs as much as a 1P coin, they can solve these problems like children that are 5 years of age and older Whereas children that are four years old, they don't, they don't solve these tasks. And they solve them like the large-brained New Caledonian crows and rooks and Eurasian jays. Yeah, so we've known for a while that these
1: other birds that you mentioned, rooks and jays and crows, are really, really intelligent. But we've always thought that they had very big brains compared to their body size and that that was why. But this is really throwing all that into the air. These animals have ti- one pea coin. That is tiny. How come they can do this?
8: So the neurons are how the brain is cognitively processing things. So if you have more neurons, you should be able to do more things cognitively. And so they have been finding that the number of neurons in your brain does not scale with how big your brain is. So you can have a very large brain but not very many neurons. I think it's going to come down to looking at how many neurons different species have so that we can make better predictions about how smart an animal should be.
1: And do we know anything about how many neurons your grackles have yet?
8: We do not. I'm waiting for some papers to come out this year. I've been waiting and waiting, and I'm really excited to see the results, but we don't know yet. So it may
1: be that packed into that 1p coin, they've got loads and loads of these cells which are actually doing the work, talking to each other, and that's what allows them to be so intelligent.
8: Right, exactly.
1: Thanks so much. That was Karina Logan, everyone. it looks like, before we get to the judge, it looks like we have a question from the audience. What did you want to ask?
5: Didn't they do some sort of study about um, birds using like a wire or a piece of metal to hook their food out of a tube like that?
8: Yes, good memory. So this was work that was done at Oxford with the New Caledonian crows. And they not only use tools, but they make a lot of different kinds of tools. And one of the kinds of tools they make is this hooked tool out of sticks. Now, there's another species that's here, the rooks, and they are also able to do this. So in the wild, rooks don't use tools, they don't make tools, but you bring them into an aviary and you give them a straight piece of wire, they'll make a hook and they'll, they'll pull the basket out.
1: Amazing. Over to the judges now. Has anyone got a comment or question for Karina?
6: You mentioned a few other tasks that crows could do, and you know, if you're saying that these birds are really smart, despite having tiny brains... Have you found any other tricks that they can do?
8: So the grackles are, are different. They're not tool users. And I did check for some tool use in the lab and I did not see that. They tend to like to flip objects over and look under rocks and things for for food as well as um, digging in our garbage and eating at our outdoor cafes they love chips and so as soon as you turn your head they're on the table stealing your chips so they can fly away and eat them so grackles have slightly different strategies than the crows have so watch your chips if you're near a grackle okay let's go over to our judges for your
1: scores now let's start with george seven
0: i'm gonna go with six
6: I kind of think you made crows sound more cool than grackles, (laughs) so I'm going to go six.
1: Okay, round of applause for Karina Logan. (laughs) Now let's go over to Heather to see what that's done to our leaders board. Heather, how's it looking now? So our grackles seem to be flying
7: south with 19. The sticklebacks are swimming downstream with 21 and a half. Caterpillars are crawling just behind our leaders, moles, which are clawing onto victory with
1: 26. So moles are the one to beat at the moment. Let's see if our next guest can manage it. We've got Ewan Keller with us now, who works for TWI Limited, studying what makes things sticky. But today he's going to tell us a bit about geckos. Why are you talking about geckos?
9: Geckos are nature's best Uh, exponents of stickiness Um, an awful lot of uh, insects especially show how you can stick to things flies walking around on ceilings and up up glass panels and also various plants also use stickiness to catch their uh, prey like sundew in the bogs but geckos do it in a completely different way their stickiness is what's called dry adhesion so they leave no mark after they've gone. So they're not using any sticky compound like the glue you would have used in the classroom. Now, geckos are also pretty cool because they're really cute and they run around. They don't have any eyelids, so they tend to just lick their eyes when they need them cleaned, which is quite fun to look at. But what really sets them apart is the fact that they can literally walk up walls. They are nature's Spider-Men, if we're going to use the Superman analogy that's already been used. Probably a lot better than Spider-Man, actually. Geckos have been around for a very long time, over 100 million years, and we actually know that they could walk up things 100 million years ago because they've actually found some fossilised in amber, and they can actually see they're on their feet. They still have the same structures, the same um, type of skin that allows them to do this. But basically, until about 2002, nobody really fully understood how this happened. So what we're now talking about are geckos harnessing the laws of physics. So they are actually got a really good scientific head-on to actually capture and use the forces of nature at the smallest level, at what we call the nano-level. If you take a millimetre divide it by 1,000, you get a micron. You divide that by 1,000 again, you get a nanometer. So we're di- working at a very, very, very fine level. And what they found, when they looked at the gecko feet under the microscope, was at the electron microscope, they found that on the feet were tiny hairs. And these hairs, which are called setae, whilst these were little hair-like structures, on the ends of these little hair-like structures, there were even smaller hairs. And these smaller hairs are called spatulae. And basically, if we, if we try and get some idea of scale, if you take a, a seti, you can get 14,000 of them on one square millimeter. And on top of each of these seti, you can get about 500 spatulate on top of that. So you can imagine it's basically a column with tiny little hairs on, which are good, even finer hairs on. And these tiny little hairs, use a force called van der Waals forces, which are all around us. And in fact, we use them and we experience them in terms of friction, amongst other things, when you want to hang on to something. But what this allows a gecko to do is it allows these tiny hairs to get very close to the surface of glass or the ceiling or a tree or a leaf. And the natural forces, this natural harnessing of physics, actually enables them to stick. Now, they don't actually need to stick very uh, significantly because most geckos are quite light about 20 grams actually a lot of them but if you could harness every single one of these spatulae, one gecko with all his fingers and all these toes could actually take a weight of 133 kilograms that's two human beings
1: so could you hang off a gecko
9: if a gecko was properly attached yes but but i don't think they'd thank you for it
1: (laughs) Now you've been talking about how the geckos can produce these amazing forces but we've got a demo here that's going to show everyone how powerful friction can be. So what have we got here?
9: What we've got here are two books which you imagine the open uh, ends facing one another where each page is interleaved with the other to actually then give a really large surface area of the paper in contact with the the other book to enable uh, the maximum amount of friction to occur.
1: So the two books, it goes page from book one, page from book two, page from book one, page from book two, all the way through. So they're touching over 200-odd pages. Who thinks they're quite strong? Okay, what's your name? Gavin. And your name? (laughs) Davin. Gavin and Davin. Okay, fantastic. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to have a little tug of war between you two. So if you stand facing each other, and one of you is going to hold on to the spine of this book, And the other one's going to hold onto the spine of the other book. And then when I say go, I want you to pull. Okay, ready? One, two, three, go. (laughs) You didn't look like you've made any difference to that book. Were you pulling as hard as you could? Yes. I think it might be just glued. (laughs) You think it might be glued? He doesn't believe me. Okay, now George is having a go. It's really, really difficult. And that is the same idea as the geckos.
9: In principle, yes. It's about getting... Literally the atoms of the surface close together between one surface and the next that allows this special attraction called Van der Waals forces to actually work. And it's so pervasive with a gecko that all a gecko needs to do is he just sort of stops and he can hang on for hours.
1: So he's not using his muscles to hold onto the wall?
9: Not at all. But... One question that no one's asked is, is how then do they unstick? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I suppose I better explain, because basically, you know, I, I call these tiny, tiny hairs spatulae. So it's like a spatula in, in cooking, a bit like a wooden spoon with a big flat end. And that's the structure of these tiny little features, is they've got this little angled foot. And basically what it means is when the gecko actually climbs, it pulls down a little bit and it, it sticks. And then when it wants to move on, it lifts and peels them off and it can peel it off with virtually no force.
1: So I just saw Georgia just checking that I hadn't glued it and unpeeling each layer of the book, and it does. It just unpeels very, very easily, and you can see that it's not glued, and that's the same thing that mm. the gecko's doing again. Yeah, absolutely. Ewan Keller, thank you very much. <laughs> Time to hear from our judges now. Who's got a comment or a question for you, and well, firstly, do the, do the
0: geckos have to be alive for it to work?
9: The phenomena works with the geckos being well and truly dead, uh, as well as being alive, though they can't obviously move uh, their feet themselves.
0: I'm wondering, can I m- strap some geckos together and make gecko gloves and climb up buildings?
9: Right, well, again, this is virtually a reality now. Uh, they already are starting to show synthetic versions of this, where a man has been um, demonstrated to climbing up a glass wall Uh, It was only a year or so ago. So the world of Spider-Man is going to become a reality.
6: It's incredible that geckos can do this, but I've done some work in the tropics. I've definitely seen a gecko fall off the ceiling. (laughs) So if they're so strong, how can they fall off?
9: Well, I guess, like anything, there's always clumsy geckos out there. (laughs) 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 If it's a very, very wet surface, then the adhesion will drop off. So it could be that it was just a very, very wet area.
5: Does it share this um, sticky thing um, ability with a tree frog
9: it's true to say that there are some other reptiles uh, and maybe some amphibians who have a similar property it's predominantly the geckos but it, it isn't unique to geckos there are some other lizards that would do it
1: if our judges are ready can we have your scores
0: please seven big fan of the geckos i'm going to go with an eight a seven and one final round of applause for you and carla
2: The Naked Scientists have launched a free Android app.
1: Now
7: you can have access to all our news, articles and podcasts 24 hours a day.
2: Plus you can listen to us live wherever you are and whenever we are on the air, be it South Africa, Australia, New Zealand or even the UK.
8: Which means you can get involved in the show with your comments or questions.
2: Download it now by searching for The Naked Scientists on Google Play Store or at www.nakedscientists.com.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me Ginny Smith where we're holding a competition to crown the most amazing animal. Next up we have Beth Berry a science communicator who's kept snakes all her life
10: so I'm assuming tonight you're going to talk about snakes. Yes, absolutely. I really love snakes. I think that they're phenomenal animals. And today I'm going to be talking about the amazing ways in which they eat. So first of all, I do have a question. Who would like a free dinner? Okay, quite a lot of hands gone up. Well, I'm going to tell you now what you have to do. I have here a watermelon and whoever can eat this watermelon, Good old Steakhouse Challenge, gets it for free. There are two rules. One is you're not allowed to break it, cut it up or chew it. So you have to swallow it whole. (laughs) We've still got one volunteer and you've got to do it without choking to death in the process. But what I'm here to tell you is that if there was a snake that was the same size as you, it had a head or a jaw the same size as yours, it would have absolutely no problem with this. Snakes can swallow things that are much bigger than the size of their own heads or even thicker than the width of their bodies. Now, a lot of people have heard the good old myth that when snakes are eating, they unhinge their jaws. That is not quite correct. The truth is that their jaws are hinged in a very different way to ours. So whereas we have the little hinge at the back of our jaw, so if you put your fingers up, you could probably feel it as you open and close your mouth. So snakes, it's very different. First of all, they have two hinges right there and a small bone in between them. And that allows them to extend their gape. If you now take your finger and touch the bottom of your chin, just right in the middle, have a feel around the bone there, you can probably feel a sort of slightly lumpy shape right in the middle where the lower left and right jaws meet. They are fused together by bone. In snakes, that does not happen. The lower jaws on the left and right side are separate. They are not connected at all except by soft tissue, so by skin and very stretchy ligaments, which means that not only can a snake open its mouth a lot wider, but the lower left and right jaw can actually spread out from each other. This means that the snake can take in food that's much larger than the size of its own head when its mouth was closed. But then we still have several problems with swallowing such a large meal. First of all, it's very, very fragile. This structure, with the many bones and the many joints, and that means that it can't really bite or chew its uh, meals. So it has this really, really clever mechanism. The teeth, they're curved around and they point towards the back of the mouth. And as the snake opens its mouth and starts to get it around the food, the left-hand side of the jaw will release slightly and slide forward over the food. And then once it's further forward than the right side, it will dig in and grip on tightly. Then as it pulls back, the right side releases slightly and pushes forward over the food, grabs on again tightly and it starts to pull back. And this repeats many times the sort of ratcheting mechanism to slowly pull the food down into the gullet of the snake. And because the skin is so elastic, it's rather like if you stuff a tennis ball down a sock, you see a large lump in the middle of the snake after it's eaten. You've actually brought another couple of guests along with you. Who have you brought? We have Mandy here from Luton Reptile Rescue, and she has brought two of her wonderful pets with her today. So there's the rather small royal python called Sharka. Hi, Sharka. So he's about
1: four feet long. He's got a beautiful scales, sort of mottled brown and beige, and he's now just winding his way up my arm.
10: If we look at Sharka's head... And so his head is less than two inches long, about an inch wide at the widest point. Yeah,
1: it does look very
10: tiny. So what kind of animals
1: would he be able to eat? He would be able to eat rats. Wow. Now we've got
10: another bigger snake here. Does anyone want to come up and meet him? What's your name? Freddie? This is Sotsi, the Burmese python. And Sotsi is quite a bit larger. Sotsi is about 10 foot long. He weighs about 20 kilos. So you're absolutely welcome to touch. What does he feel like? Smooth, very smooth.
1: I'm now wearing him as a feather bow. He slightly like, feels like he's tightening around my neck, which I'm thinking is maybe not the best idea.
10: No, you're just his ideal radiator. Mm. The thing, so. they are,
1: they're very cold to the touch, but they're not at all slimy. They're smooth and scaly. I might have to give him back. <laughs> he keeps trying to lick my ear, which is a little bit distracting. Um, so Freddie is now going to hold the smaller one. We're putting him around his neck. How does that feel? Very nice. So he's just draping
10: himself across your neck. And they do feel beautiful, don't they? Yes, they have very, very smooth scales. They also keep themselves very clean. So if you like a nice, clean house, a snake is a perfect pet for you because they are fastidious about personal hygiene. (laughs) And I believe they don't need feeding very often. No, absolutely not. One of the reasons that they um, eat such large amounts when they can is that they really don't eat very often. The only reason that they eat is to get the nutrients that they need in order to grow and to repair any injuries that they might have. So unlike us who have to eat in order to just stay alive,
1: they only need to eat so that they can grow and heal?
10: Yep, pretty much. So they don't need to eat very much at all. We've got a question from the audience. Toxie the watermelon now. Yeah, so Totsy, if we look at the size of Totsy's head... So he's about two
1: inches long and an inch wide at the biggest, maybe an inch and a half at the biggest point. But by the time you
10: get down to his nose, he's only less than an inch wide. Yeah, but he could quite easily, if he wanted to, get his drawers over this watermelon. The food that he eats often um, decently large rabbits... Okay, I think we should probably say a huge thank
1: you to Mandy from Luton Reptile Rescue.
0: Let's go over to the judges and see what they thought about that. We're getting acquainted with Shaka. I'm absolutely enamoured.
6: In the process of playing with the snake, you can really feel the strength in the muscles of the snake. Are there any other ways that snakes kill their food before then managing to cram it in their face.
10: You do primarily get the, uh, the venomous snakes and the constrictors. Um, in terms of the constrictors, what they do is they tend to wrap around the rib cage, and they can feel very well the heartbeat of what they've wrapped around. And they will continue to constrict until that heartbeat stops. What they do is, uh, rather than just simply squeezing you until you can't breathe, as you breathe out, they will tighten and then they will use all that muscle to hold you very still so that you can't expand your ribcage to breathe in again. And then as you try to breathe out more to give yourself some room to breathe in, they tighten again. And that is how it works. When I say you, obviously I don't mean you as humans. <laughs> I mean the small animals that they tend to prefer to feed on. With the venomous snakes, if they poison their prey, how can they eat it? they are- Two things to think about. One is that a lot of venoms are only harmful when injected into the bloodstream. So you could actually consume them by swallowing them down into your stomach and it wouldn't harm you. Another reason is that, as you know, for a lot of snake bites, a lot of venomous bites, we have developed anti-venoms, And these are actually often developed from the poison glands of the snakes that produce those venoms because they contain biochemical molecules that can protect you from the negative effects. Okay I
1: think it's time to get the scores from our judges please. I'm going to give snakes an eight. Seven.
6: Uh, and another eight definitely for actually getting to meet the snakes is incredible. <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: A round of applause for Beth Berry and the snake. <laughs> Now, I think it's about time we have an update. We've only got one animal left to compete. So how is our leaderboard shaping up, Heather? Well,
7: unfortunately, it seems like our grackles stayed on the other side of the pond with a 19. Our sticklebacks are still heading downstream with 21 and a half. Our geckos are stuck in fourth place with 22. because Our snakes slithered ahead into third place with 23. And again, caterpillars an inch behind with 25 and a half. Our leaders, the moles dug in for victory with 26. But could our final animal swoop in to
1: take the victory? Well, I think it's time to find out. So last but certainly not least, we have Jade Lauren Corthway, who's an ecologist, a citizen science practitioner and a bat enthusiast. What is it about bats that you find so interesting?
5: Well, some of my competitors this evening have already mentioned how their amazing animals uh, should kind of have similar powers or interesting features that superheroes have. But my amazing animal actually has a superhero named after it, which makes it especially cool. Batman and they are found across the world in every single type of habitat or part of the world except for the polar regions where it's too cold and there aren't any insects that they can eat. Now I'm particularly fond of the British bats here in the UK and we have 18 species of bat here in the UK and 7 within Cambridge City and there are two major groups, two major types of bats. We've got the mega bats which are humongous bats with dog-like faces, big eyes and little ears. And most of them are eating fruits. Some of them like to eat nectar from plants. Um, And then we have the micro bats, which are usually the smaller bats. They have big ears, little eyes, and are often insect eaters. And, And all the bats here in the UK are the micro bats. They're all insect eaters. Now, the size of bats varies hugely the biggest bat in the world is a flying fox and it has a wingspan of two meters so put your arms out stick your arms out side to side the flying fox is bigger than your arm span it is humongous and it can fly straight out into oceans for long long distances the smallest bat in the world was relatively recently discovered and it's called the bumblebee bat and it is as small as your thumbnail Now, here in the UK, of our 18 species, our smallest bat are the pipistrelle bats. We've got a common pipistrelle and a soprano pipistrelle, and they're about 23 centimetres wide. And the biggest bat in the UK is the noctual bat, which has a 40 centimetre wingspan. So it's quite substantial, and you see them flying high across um, hedgerows and tree lines here in the UK bats do some incredible things. Some of the most amazing things include hibernation and echolocation. So hibernation is particularly important for bats that live in temperate environments like ours here in the UK where you have seasons, you have a hot summer, you have cooler autumn, really cold winter and then a lighter spring. And because during that winter period there aren't any insects available for them to eat, they need to go to sleep and they need to get their body temperature really, 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 really low so that they're not using energy because there's no food to replace that energy so they slow their heart rate down to four beats per minute and this means that they can get their metabolism down and make sure their body temperature is the same as the air temperature and that means then they're not losing energy by heat into the atmosphere and can save as much fat through the winter to try to get them back through until the spring comes. Certainly here in the UK, they'll start to go into hibernation about October time and they'll hibernate all the way through till about March time. So our bats have started to fly around again and started to feed again. Now here in the UK, once the insects start coming, they can start getting out again. And the females are really, really hungry because inside the females, they are now starting to grow baby bat inside of them. So they have to start eating lots and lots and lots of food. A colony of about 100 pipistrelle bats can eat up to one ton of insects in a single evening and the female bats the baby inside of them can grow to 50 percent of their body weight in about august time it gets quite exciting because then the babies are born and the babies at first they drink milk from their mothers they have milk teeth first and those milk teeth will drop out and they'll place them with insect eating teeth and then they'll start to come out and fly and feed with the other adult bats At that point, the mums and dads start to socialise again. They've been keeping themselves separate. Mum's been busy looking after the babies. And then the mums and dads start to get together. They start to go and have a nice dinner for two over on a branch in a tree somewhere. And then something very exciting happens. The male bat gives the female bat a special cell. And the female bat keeps that cell in her body throughout the whole of the winter. The egg cell and the sperm cell aren't joined yet. They stay separate in her body. And when the temperature rises again, she then makes fertilisation occur in her body and the sperm cell and the egg cell meet. And it's at that point that then she's able to grow the baby. And this is a really important strategy for survival because during that winter period, there is no food available for her to grow that baby bat. So she needs to stave off that process of growing a new young bat inside her until there's food available, which I think is an incredible strategy. So just a couple of amazing things. I should probably also mention that bats are the only true flying mammal in the whole world, which makes them pretty cool. But they also have another extra special feature, which we've got an audio recording of. Now, you might just have heard that crackly, then popping sound. Now, that is the sound of a bat. And we've used that. What we've done um, with that recording is we've taken a bat detector out into the field and the bat detector has recorded the noise that the bat's making. But then the bat detector does a special calculation to turn that noise into something we can hear. Because bats, their echolocation calls and many of their social calls are really, really high pitched at a frequency our human ears can't hear. And so... That noise is the right pattern that is actually going on outside all of the time. But something scaled down to what we can hear. And what the bats are doing is they're giving humongous shouts out to their environment. And the shouts are so loud that they can deafen themselves. So they actually have to detach their ears so that they don't deafen themselves when they shout. And then that noise bounces off the environment. And depending on how far away an object is from them, that depends on how quickly the sound comes back. And then their brains make a calculation about the distance to the nearest tree, the distance to the nearest wall. But the sound and the complexity of those sound waves is so fine that they're able to determine shapes and features as well, which means that a pipistrelle bat, our 23 centimetre long bat, is able to find tiny little gnats and mosquitoes in a whole field of trees and leaves and other insects and moths flying around. Those are some amazing
1: abilities to be able to fly, to be able to see in the dark with sound. I think bats have a good chance of giving the other animals we've talked about tonight a run for their money, but
0: let's go over to the judges to see what they think. Thanks Jade. Uh, You mentioned Batman. I love this idea of an actual Batman, like Think about how much better Ben Affleck would be if he was fluffy, squeaked loads and could detach his own ears. I, I would watch that film.
6: I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about detaching their own ears. How? What? How? Just how?
5: You know, like, within our ears we have three little bones. Well, they've got the ability to separate those for a fraction of a second while that shout goes out in our human ears to conduct
1: the sound from outside to inside as jade says there are three bones which connect to each other the air pushes our eardrum that pushes one bone pushes the next bone pushes the next bone and that's transmitted off into our brains so if you separate two of those bones that information can't get from the outside through to the brain so I, i think that's right that's how that works it's time for our judges to give their final scores of the night. Over to you guys.
0: Eight. Eight. Eight.
1: Ten. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh! Round of applause. That was Jade Lauren Courtway. Now, it's very nearly time for our final scores, but before we do that, we need to go back to Yole and see how your fish have done. So if you remember, right at the beginning we had some sort of goldish-brown-coloured fish and we put half of them in a black tank and we put half of them in a white tank. What are they looking like now?
3: They're very hard to find now, um, so it takes me a while maybe.
1: What can you see? One fish is black and the other one is white. So they do look really different now, don't they?
3: You can see that in this just one hour... These fish look totally different from one another. And this is really great because this helps them to be uh, camouflaged against the background, Um, helps them that all these predators that are out there will not find them as easily.
1: So if you look at them from the side, you can see almost stripes of black on the one that's been in the black tank, whereas the white one is just very pale. And most of the colour seems to be focused on the top half of the fish. Their undersides, their tummies are still kind of silvery. Why is that?
3: Most predators are actually aerial imagine herons standing next to a uh, creek so these birds they look down they try to find these fish but if you look at them from above this is when you see their back and this is the most camouflaged part
1: do you want to so- show the judges and see if they'll give you an extra point <laughs> no
5: <laughs> totally
1: impressed. what
6: about George you max is a tough. No, the Judge, I'm works. It definitely gets a bonus point
1: one more bonus point from you, for Yole. And then you, the audience, are going to make the final decision as to who the winner is out of our top three. So, Heather, can we have the final tally? Who are our top three animals? So our extra stickleback
7: point didn't actually change the tag. It did, didn't make the top three. We have the moles dug in for victory with 26. But the bats swooped in for a tiebreaker and also have 26, with the caterpillars just crawling
1: slightly behind 25 and a half. But the points now don't mean anything, because it's all down to you. So what I'm going to do is name each of those animals, and I want you to cheer. And the animal that gets the loudest cheer is going to be crowned the winner. Who thinks the winner should be the bats? (laughs) Who thinks the winners should be the moles?
8: Yeah! Yeah!
1: <laughs> oh, disappointing! And who thinks it should be the caterpillars? Yeah! I think the caterpillars had it. So, a huge round of applause to Hannah Rowland because her caterpillars have been named the Naked Scientists' most amazing animal. Round of applause. Yeah. we also need to say a huge thank you to all of our other contributors tonight we had Yole Yoles we had Nick Crumpton, Karina Logan Ewan Keller, Beth Berry and Jade Lauren Cawthray, round of applause for all of them <laughs> also a huge thank you to our judges, Max Gray Georgia Mills and George Patton and also to the voice of our leaderboard Heather Douglas and to Hannah Olsen for production The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Ginny Smith. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.
2: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.